The From Day One podcast is brought to you by The Bridge. Visit us at thebridgebk.com. Hi, I'm Nick Bailey, and this is the From Day One podcast. With us today is Brian Vines. He's a senior correspondent at Brick TV. Although Vines hasn't started a full-blown business, Brian is definitely a founder. He's the host of Going In with Brian Vines, a show that takes viewers into the field to report and discuss issues relevant to Brooklyn. Episodes have focused on topics such as gentrification, Islam in the borough, institutional racism, and the relationship of tech with the city. The show takes a full half an hour and dives beyond the surface to really dig into the issues that matter. Along with launching his own show, Vines has a variety of hosting and writing roles at Brick, such as hosting the Be Heard Town Hall series and BK Live. Before joining Brick, Vines was an associate producer at CNN, and he was a press secretary at the Brooklyn Borough President's Office. Brian's originally from Chicago. He's got a degree in international relations, a master's in broadcast journalism from Boston University. Brian, thanks for coming in. Thank you for having me. So you're on your second season of going in with Brian Vines. Um, You want to talk a little bit about how the show got started, how you ended up uh, creating it in the first place? You know, we have just wrapped the second season, actually, uh, from the production standpoint. So everything is in the can, and we're in the middle of editing right now. So we have a small but mighty team of very dedicated folks. So I get to go out and have some fun for a few days. And then we wade through all the stuff and try to make something coherent. But uh, it all started, honestly, it was the idea of our chief over there, Aziz Aisham, who every time I begin to feel some kind of restlessness throws another challenge at me. I don't know what he's clued into or if there's some kind of crystal ball on his desk. But the moment I start to just like sit back and think, hmm, he comes in, throws another challenge at me that keeps me all tied up until the next thing. So he came with this idea of saying, hey, why don't we do this? Break the walls of the studio and get you out in the street and talking to people, making things immersive, making a show about access and bringing people into places that they wouldn't normally have access to. So the original idea was to get out of the studio basically and get behind the scenes? Well, to get into the stream more even. So uh, by us getting into the stream, we sort of did have to get out of the studio. And I'm very comfortable in the studio. I love having people come by. But it's also nice to meet people where they live. And I always say that brick where I work is like a Star Wars outpost bar because there are people from all over and you never know who you're going to bump into or what kind of connections you can make at the table in the studio or just walking around that building. But uh, it's nice to go out and meet people, like I said, where they are. It's very freeing. The show kind of has like a, like I guess like a verite sort of feel. Um, Reminds me of like a certain style of TV. Mm -hmm. Um, It feels very familiar. You know, like I think of it as like, maybe like early MTV news or there's mm. that late night with David Tell show. You know, there's some antecedents to it, obviously. Right. What were you, what, what were your inspirations? Like what were you watching that you were trying to sort of. Oh boy. I, echo? I steal from everywhere. And that's what I always recommend. I have a list of shows that I watch that I become really obsessed with. And I always share them with my team. We had a genius director of photography whose name is Chris Raditz, who's left us for Los Angeles. But uh, we sort of do did a brain meld where I was sort of downloading all the things that I watch from the way that things look, dramas and true crime stuff, as well as Nightline and uh, some CNN shows, uh, 
lots of shows. I watch so many things. So I like I try to just steal from the best places and the sort of look and feel hopefully starts to emerge and it becomes more clear. But I think we like to experiment as well. But uh, yeah, everything from Law and Order to to watching Christiane Amanpour wherever she is around the world. We really just taken a lot of influences. There was a show on Showtime actually uh, around the time of the election, the circus, where that was something that influenced me a lot because it really felt like you were just in the car with a correspondent, with a camera, and you saw all of the process stuff, which I find really engaging. What kind of questions were you hoping that the show might might be able to answer? I think that we are figuring that every time for every subject, but it really was about this idea of going inside issues, going inside people's worlds where, uh, where it can be sort of immersive and also thinking of new ideas. We did a show, the beginning, the premiere show of the second season was about toxic masculinity as the larger umbrella of the show. And in that we met Adam Lippman, who uh, is the co-founder of Cuddleist. And there was this idea of cuddling as a entry into teaching people about consent, specifically men about not being weird around women and learning boundaries and cuddling the way that they structure their meetups and the groups and just their whole ethos around contact. So this idea of getting at toxic masculinity and teaching people about consent through cuddling. And it also, we found out, was giving women a sense of empowerment over their own bodies and drawing boundaries for men. So things that don't immediately come to mind, but the show lets people say, hmm, maybe that could work or we could at least explore it. So out of the box stuff, along with just the kind of talk that you have at your kitchen table or on your stoop, but hopefully elevated a little. But it seems like one of the things that I thought was cool about the show was that you guys kind of you stick to some formats that are that are understandable. I mean, you go out in the street, you you know, it's obviously super Brooklyn focused and yeah. so, you, so you're very much in, engaged in Brooklyn. And of course, you, you know, these kind of things they involve profiles, you know, you talk to people and you talk about their things, but I, I felt like you guys did a really good job of 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 weaving a concept in be, beyond just like here's a person, here's another person and they're yeah. all in Brooklyn together. Like you would sort of weave a narrative through a couple yeah. different profiles of a couple different people. Is that something you're doing on purpose? It is something that we do on purpose because the show has a small staff. We are about five of us sitting around the table and I'm sure at some point each of their names will come out, but there are five of us and we bring our own lives to the show and every just format wise, we're not reinventing the wheel. Like we just want to make sure that we produce something that's super high quality for the people of Brooklyn who are watching and deserve that and don't often get a chance to see themselves reflected back in underserved communities, overserved communities, however they are, we meet people where they live. And it begins with a sort of personal essay monologue at the top that is personal to me. Like I always have to find a way into the story and it's not centered on my view at all, but it's just me sharing a bit of my experience so people can feel comfortable with me invading their space or you can even feel comfortable watching just to see my humanity because no 
part of human experience is foreign to me as a human. So I'm hoping that even if someone is someone's experience isn't my own, they see a small sliver of my humanity and say, oh, well, I can't directly relate to that. But if you're open enough to share that with me and it's not earth shattering stuff like I in an episode about technology, my dad is a horrible texter and he does this talk to text feature and he always sends the wildest messages because he doesn't proofread them either. So <laughs> I open with That's a very funny thing yeah, I watched that one. Like my dad's talking about he's in the bath and that's not what he was saying at all. But it is just those small little glimpses. So it's personal to us. So yeah, we we do think about the way that people relate to it because all of the stories from toxic masculinity to gentrification to just dealing with technology, those are all things that myself and the people who work on the show are dealing with. How do you pick those topics? I mean, that's you mentioned a lot of hot button issues um, in a row there. How do you sort of decide what you're going to focus on this week? Or We have a master calendar that Catherine Rodriguez, Cat is always saying, okay, then what about this episode? Or what do we, there's a running sort of document that if someone has a thought about something or they heard something or they read something and we try not to, I found that when we try to chase a headline or you read something interesting in the times on Sunday and we try to translate that, it doesn't always come out as successful as we would have wanted it to because just because you saw something cool and read about it doesn't mean that it's where we are living right now or we have an in. So even if you come with the like grain of an idea, we just polish that and put it through our lens and Brooklynify it and try to share it with our community. What's that process like? Like how do you go from a from an idea or a concept? I mean someone's gotta I mean to get on the phone, you Google and figure out who to talk to. Like how do you how do you what are the mechanics of that? Well working at a place like Brick is uh, sort of a genius way to really use this Brooklyn universe because people do pass through a lot and Brook is a multidisciplinary organization. There's a performing arts uh, silo and there is a fine arts portion. There's a community media center where people from all over come in and find their voice and use free speech TV. And there's the Brick TV part where uh, it's a little more produced and we're there full time. So Number one, that's an amazing resource to pick from because there are people in the building who are experiencing things and who come up to you and talk to you about it. And we talk a lot and we argue about things. And I'm really quick at saying I'm bored by something, which I'm getting over myself and not doing that as much. But we we challenge each other. So it's like I said, it's a small staff and we we're very familial with each other. And we talk like people do. We all sort of fall into these roles, oddly enough. But it's a lot of talking, but a lot of doing. We do read. We watch a lot of things. And we bring our personal experience to it and just try to find the best people to really bring something home. So talk a little bit. How did you get into the idea of uh, being a broadcaster in the first place in journalism? Is that something that you were doing? Were you, were you playing? I mean... I don't know how old you are. Was there YouTube when you were a kid? Were you, were you, were you, did you have a camcorder? Like, how did you how did you first get started? When I was a child, we had Viewmasters. There is no YouTube. But I, when I went to college, I studied international relations, but I found that whenever I had a sort of independent project to do or I won a fellowship my sophomore year and it was 
I did a media study and I submitted this fellowship idea and I got in and I passed and I spent the summer in New York working with a woman who is a professor of television at NYU and uh, Sasha, she's moved on from there now. But I had this idea about the Million Man March and the Promise Keepers Rally. And there were so many things inherent in both of those movements that I saw and I saw no one contrast them or compare them. And to me, it was so glaring. And I said, somebody should do a study on how the major news networks, which were just uh, CBS, NBC, ABC at that point, how they covered these two movements. And I hadn't seen that. So I was like, I can do this study. And I submitted the proposal and I spent the summer in New York City in archives and going over stuff and watching a lot of Bill Moyers. And I was sort of hooked. So I thought, wow, this is this is fascinating to me. And I get the summer to play around learning about something because we don't often get the chance to realize one project to fruition, which is such a luxury. But I then applied to graduate school for journalism after that. I realized that I spent a lot of my parents' money and a lot of student loans studying international relations. I thought I was going to be a lawyer, but I was always interested in this thing. And then I applied to grad school. But the real heart of the story is before that, my grandmother is, my grandmother's not with us anymore, but she was blind. So when I was a kid, I would do everything with my grandmother. My grandmother was my life. And uh, she was phenomenal. And I was her eyes from the time I was a little boy. So we would watch TV together. And my grandmother loved the news and she loved soap operas. So as a kid, I watched a lot of news and a lot of daytime dramas with my grandmother. And she taught me how to watch because if someone is in the news, she would say, oh, she's listening to the story. But she asked me what pictures they were showing. So she was creating a news producer observer without me even knowing it. So you were like a professional color commentator, like right from the living room. I was a colored color commentator in the living room of my grandmother's house. And that was a big thing because she taught me to see if there was a story about business, what did the pictures look like? If there was a story about crime, what did the pictures look like? If there was a bear up a tree, like whatever it was, I was describing it to her. So I matched words with pictures and in the soap operas with the drama, like, you know, half of it is on the screen and the intonation and the way that people speak. So if someone was pregnant and then she's like, is she looking down? Is she looking at him? Is she looking up? So my grandmother, my blind grandmother taught me how to see and I never unlearned that. That's fascinating. Did you have instincts of going into radio possibly for that same reason or? I didn't. I never thought that radio was a job. It was just something that was ever present and it still is in my life. I, If I'm not engaging with people, I'm engaging with the radio. And half of the time that I'm engaging with people, there's one headphone in my ear. But uh, it, I never thought of it as a job just because it was omnipresent. And growing up watching TV so much, I... I say I was raised by TV, which my mother hates, but I was. I was a TV kid. I didn't go out and play. I went out and played when I was at my cousin James's house on the weekend. But other than that, the kids were out and I liked to watch TV. So I was always in the house and it wasn't an idea. I thought I was going to be a lawyer from the time I was a little boy just because I liked to talk and I liked making points and I liked to argue. And I thought that's what lawyers did. And my favorite teacher from third grade, Mrs. Reefs, 
her husband was a lawyer and they sort of, uh, they didn't have kids at the time. And I was like their son, she's my Jewish mom. And I still am in touch with her and love her and her husband. And I thought I was going to be a lawyer, but uh, yeah. But when I was in second grade, not even second grade, my kindergarten teacher wrote on my report card that I would make an excellent journalist, which is mind Clairvoyant, I guess, right? Like, what, why would, what could a kid who's five years old, six years old do to make you think they would be? But I would love to interview her. When did you think TV might actually be, you know, your, your day job or your real job? You know, even when I went to graduate school for journalism, I was on the producer track and I produced for all of my friends. We were like most J school programs. I went to Boston University, the College of Communications there, and we teamed up and there was always someone who was ready to be on camera, but I was committed to producing. I I, I liked making the connections, making the calls, doing all that stuff, and that carried me through. But more than that, I knew that I didn't want to move to uh, somewhere that was a small town in some place. I'm a city kid. I'm from Chicago. I went to grad school in Boston, and I knew that I wasn't going to work my way up from some small market as a reporter. And I thought, if I want to stay in a city, I'm going to have to learn how to produce and go to a market and not have to do all that hopping. So that was something. But then, yeah, I saw my own reflection eventually and fell in love with (laughs) With the idea of being on camera. Yeah, if I'm being honest, like, I'm not so ugly. Like, I could do this. People wouldn't turn away in horror. And when I was working at CNN, it was like I was doing everything but delivering it. So I'm like... I've got all these skills. I know what question to ask. And uh, that's really, I made the leap, I guess, after leaving there. How did you end up in Brooklyn specifically and working on Brooklyn topics? And what's what's it like to be someone working on Brooklyn topics that that isn't actually born here or from here originally? I wanted to move to Harlem. And uh, my boyfriend at the time wanted to move to Brooklyn. And we flipped a coin saw a place in Harlem, we saw a place in Brooklyn, and Brooklyn won. And it was the best thing that ever happened. Brooklyn has completely embraced me. I feel so at home here to be a guy from Chicago. When I moved to Bed-Stuy, I called my parents and said, oh, this is it. This is just like home. There's old people, there's dogs, there's kids, there's messy people, there's like every other cousin. And I felt like, wow, this is really home. So Brooklyn has completely embraced me to the extent that I've embraced Brooklyn. I I really feel so comfortable and I love it here. I couldn't imagine being anywhere else. And I hesitate to say that because I don't want anything to yank me out. I feel like I'm at one of those moments in my life where I don't want to breathe too deeply. I'm taking shallow breaths because I feel like everything is so in balance right now. I'm so fulfilled in so many ways that I'm just like, let's just maintain, let's maintain. But Brooklyn is phenomenal and I'm not from here, but I feel like I'm of here after. What do you, what do you think makes Brooklyn special? I mean, clearly clearly, there's something different about Brooklyn that, that, that inspires people. What is it that inspires you? It's the mix. It's the fact that people are stakeholders. No matter how long they've been here, there's a sense of ownership and the friction that's inherent in that and the acknowledgement of that friction. Like I'm from the Midwest. I know what it's like to be 
nice and uh, to to get along. And my dad is from the South and he still waves at people and beeps his horn and waves and all that jazz. So that's part of me. But I'm also from Chicago. I'm like spent summers with my grandparents in Mississippi. But it like it's the mix that happens in Brooklyn. We have the tension. We have the creativity and there's lots of things in flux right now. And I think it really is the best of what's happening in this country is right here in Brooklyn. I sound like a booster right now, but I really, I couldn't imagine being in a different place. The weather is the weather. <laughs> being in the city is the city. There's a lot of stuff in transition, but I think the the people and the acknowledgement and the realness of what's really in front of us is what makes Brooklyn. You mentioned, the trans, you mentioned the transition. I mean, Brooklyn right now, um, you know, I've lived in Brooklyn for about 20 years. Yeah. And it, it, to me, you know, it often feels unrecognizable, you know, whether it's in neighborhoods or, I mean, who, you, you name it, you're walking yeah. down, you know, Flatbush right. uh, by the Barclays Center and looking up, of course, for a long time, Brooklyn resident is just crazy. Um, but there's many, many, many other examples. Um, do you sense that tremendous change that's happening around you as, as you cover it? I'm a little bit behind. I'm about 16 years in now. And I do see that change. I, I remember being like a youngster when I was first here in Brooklyn and I was in Williamsburg with all of my friends and we were one of the early waves when you could only rent from old Italian families or uh, Hasidic landlords. And now there are these spaceships that have landed right next to the old horrible architecture that was there before just in that one specific neighborhood that I spent a number of years in and now I go there and it's it's the same it's I'm gonna borrow something from RuPaul he said it's like if you went to uh, your class reunion and your best friend had a gender reassignment surgery you still know all about them but it's completely different at the same time and that's what it feels like sometimes walking around this place you know every inch but every inch is sort of changed or it's changing and I think that's what makes it so exciting to be a person who gets to put a microphone in people's face on the street or at will and just have people open up to you and invite that conversation to talk about the tension that's inherent in that change and what they think is better what they miss what they would bring back what they don't care for like to be in my position to have a record of all of that i think i'm very privileged and i i, I don't take that lightly it could be argued i mean if you play devil's advocate that um that 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 one of the side effects of this change is that there really there, there really is less and less it's, it's really less and less true that there's a space for everyone in brooklyn i mean you know, Brooklyn is still an incredible melting pot and, 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 and it's, you know, people come here from all over and from different backgrounds, but it's becoming less true that they come from different socioeconomic backgrounds, um, that there's some argument to be said that, that Brooklyn is for sort of like, it, it's going to be for the rich only at some point, And that's the way things are going. Um, just to be able to participate in New York City in general, it's becoming almost impossible for huge parts of the country. Is that, a, is that something that you, that you try to see and document as well as you, as you tell the stories of people in Brooklyn? I think if you are a person who calls yourself a journalist or has the privilege of talking to people and keeping that record, if you're not doing that, you're doing a disservice to yourself and to the place where you live right now. It's it's palpable. And that's why people in places like Detroit are claiming that they're the new 
or someplace in Jersey or South Philly or wherever you happen to be, they want to be the new Brooklyn. But it is the the Brooklyn that they think they want to be is the Brooklyn that is fading away a little because it's becoming moneyed. And anytime you have the influence of money and the J crewification of neighborhoods and just everything becomes flattened. And you could be like, if you're sitting at a beachfront cafe, whether you're in Cape town or in Miami, it's very hard to discern where you are. There's the same beautiful tan people. There's the same oysters. There's the same booze that they show you, even the cars on the street. So as we become successful through the eyes of moneyed people, people do get pushed to the margins. And I'm very interested in what is happening in the margins and how people are living and surviving and even in some instances thriving against what forces are working against them just trying to maintain space and at this moment politically i was ready for that knowing that we've made a lot of advances but that the next four years from the time when the last president was elected would be about maintaining space less would be about maintaining space more than they would be about gaining ground and Mm -hmm. being more compassionate and human to each other we fought so hard for the places where we are and now we just are becoming entrenched if there are people you know out there listening that want to that have stories of their own that they want to tell you know through journalism through yeah. through video what, what kind of advice would you give them um, for how they could get started like doing what you're doing uh, years ago i did a high school workshop for kids who like a high school journalism workshop i woke up early on Saturdays and went to LIU to work with a bunch of high schoolers. And I told them, if you are here, you're a journalist. And it's not a matter of having an iPhone or a YouTube account. It's whatever you do is what you are. So be mindful about what you do and belong to where you are. So don't try to be everything that you've seen because that's been done. Just be you. Try to trying to find a voice wherever you are and what you have to contribute, I think, is the most important thing. You don't need a journalism degree to share stories and tell stories. There are definitely some journalistic principles that we should all adhere to. But there are people who purport to be journalists who have very large platforms who are frankly not. And uh, they've got a lot of ears and they have loud voices, but there are certain core things that you have to adhere to. Truth and facts are pretty cool when you're working in journalism. But for anyone who does want to share experiences and tell stories, you become something by doing it. So there's nothing to stop you from doing it. It's nice when you can show up with a camera operator and a production assistant and a producer to sort of legitimize who you are. But until the moment you do, you still just work at it. You know, it's funny. You said there's nothing stopping you. Um, But that's, of course, like a recent development. I mean, 20 years ago, the thing that was stopping you was like you could shoot video, you could shoot VHS all day, but like no one's ever going to see it. Right. Um, Now it is actually credible and possible that you could start with an iPhone or you know, literally anything, um, go to a public library. I mean, you need almost no resources whatsoever to at least have a shot at, 
you know, mass exposure. On the flip side, of course, you know, when everybody's, you know, when everybody's trying to do the same thing, it's almost, it's almost impossible to stand out. Like you're like a candle under massive floodlights. Do you think it's easier or harder now for someone who wants to kind of get out there and tell their story? Well, it depends on what, what it is that you think of as a success, because I, I consider myself and my team to be successful in the endeavors that we do, like Going In or 112BK or any of the shows that come out of my shop, Laughaholics over in at Brick. But I said belong to where you are, and I really do believe that. If you belong to where you are and you hold up a mirror and let people see themselves and see your heart and where you are, I think that's important and it's not personality driven but it it's really doing the work and having respect for the people who respect you enough to just pause to speak with you or pause to listen i was in the grocery store uh always in the grocery store at the grocery store the other day and a woman stopped me and just started talking to me and saying that she enjoys the show and and that that felt really good and it's nice to be recognized And I know I'm just the guy who gets to stand there. And I always try to bring that back to my team and let them know what happens. But at the same time, it's very cool. I was in Target and a woman just said to me, Vines, get that yogurt for me. She was the shorter woman. And (laughs) and I didn't know this woman. And she said it. And I just snapped in and I reached and got the yogurt from the top shelf. But... To me, that's awesome. And that that is being successful. And even if you are that small flame under the floodlights, no one goes up to uh, whoever is hosting any show, George Stephanopoulos, and not he's not very tall, so he couldn't get the yogurt from the top. <laughs> but no one goes up to George Stephanopoulos and say, hey, George, Stephanopoulos, grab me that yogurt up there. Because I think that idea of success, which I'm not shunning, I'll take it, I, is very different than being a guy in the community who people mm-hmm. recognize and it's like, oh, you talked to my cousin, you interviewed my granddaughter. And to me, that is worth so much more than someone doing Gawker Stalker and they saw you in the aisle somewhere that they come up and engage. So that's my idea of success. If you can be a part of a community that says you are doing a good job or can hold you accountable and say, I don't know about that. What? And that engages you. I, I love that when people come and talk to me about stuff that we're doing or what we're not doing, more importantly, to to keep us accountable. And I think that that's phenomenal. I love that. That's awesome. So what's next for you guys over at Brick? What, what are you guys looking at for the rest of the year and, and beyond? Well, on Going In with Brian Vines, Wednesdays at 8 with a repeat Sunday at 10 a.m., we are wrapping up that second season with a really phenomenal episode if I may say so myself, about laws, stupid laws, laws that should be on the books, laws that aren't. Uh, We are talking about the Child Victims Act, which has been uh, facing opposition in the New York State Senate. And we've got some great voices on that. We also talk about uh, discovery laws. And we met some a person whose life was directly impacted by it and spoke with the folks at Legal Aid about the laws of discovery and what evidence is allowed for prosecutors to share. And it's very interesting. And it really, it impacts people where we live right now. And I think it's 
my favorite episode of the season. So hopefully uh, you guys will watch and click through or however you receive your media. But we're getting ready for the next season to try some new things and expand that form that we were talking about to make it a little bit more immersive and a little bit more amorphous in a way where now we sort of stick to three segments but this is going to be a little more permeable where we're weaving in and out and really uh bringing more voices to the front and uh letting them be in concert with each other so we're trying some new things we have a vision meeting next week so hopefully uh, people will stay engaged and tune in again in the fall when we begin the next season to try and see how we experiment it's a fun little laboratory awesome well brian thank you so much for coming in thank you thank you this is phenomenal you've been listening to from day one how brooklyn entrepreneurs got their start this series is made possible by The Bridge, a news site dedicated to reporting on business in Brooklyn. With help from Complex Ventures, a Brooklyn-based digital agency working with more than profit companies and organizations. For more from The Bridge, to learn more about today's guest, or to listen to more episodes of From Day One, visit us at thebridgebk.com. That's T-H-E-B-R-I-D-G-E-B-K.com. From Day One is produced by Cora Feeder, Steve Kep, and myself, Nick Bailey. Audio editing and post-production by Steph Derwin. Our theme music was performed by Jody Rockwell and the Ambulance. And our founding sponsor was the Made in New York Media Center. Thanks for listening. <laughs>